Hello, and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast where we discuss a screenplay from the 21st century and the process of writing it. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today we're going to be doing Roma, which is written and directed by Alfonso Cuaron. It's my favorite film, I think, from 2018 by far. So I'll just start with that. Like, I'm a big geek for this film. I think I've seen it three times. And I think watching it again in the cinemas and getting that whole big screen experience really elevated the story for me. Because sound became a very important factor in it. But we can talk about that. There was, a, there was a lot of buzz around this film. So mm-hmm. we knew this was coming out months yeah. before it did. And there, was, there were just snippets. <clears throat> like, you'd hear the word. You'd hear the title. You'd see a couple of stills from the film, black and white. And that was kind of all you knew. Well, at least my experience yeah. was I, I want to see this film as soon as it comes out. And of course, ne- Netflix had set this date. It's a Netflix production. Yeah, it's probably uh, the best film they've made. At yeah. least critically, it's been the most well received film yeah. they've ever made. They put a backing on a director who had really gone quite Hollywood, I suppose. And he's choosing to return to his roots, mm-hmm. but also getting the backing of the main streaming service in America. So that was yeah. that was a really interesting kind of combination of right. interests in creating that film. I think it makes sense, though, because Netflix kind of needed, I guess, an independent sort of filmmaker, but he's got experience doing these big budget films, too. So it's I think he he's a very versatile director. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's told the same type of story twice. He tends to go to different genres, and I think... Even just by his name, that creates excitement. Because he doesn't do films that often. And every time he comes out with a film, they're usually really, really good. And they get a lot of awards and stuff. So I think they knew who they were hiring when they brought him on board. And because of that, now they're kind of expanding to theatrical releases. I mean, they were really aiming for the best foreign language film Oscar. Yes, I suppose. I think they still are, but now it's gotten... But now uh, with the theatrical release, they've actually created a situation where it's up for real Oscars as well. Yes. I saw a very interesting clip. I Mm -hmm. recommend people check it out. Hopefully it's... uh, I don't remember if I saw it in English or Spanish, but Mm. it must be subtitled if it was in Spanish. Uh, But a reporter was asking him about the potential negative impact of his film on independent cinema. I think I saw this, yes. Yeah, and his reply was fantastic, where he said to him, he said back to the reporter, do you really think that independent cinemas were interested in films made in black and white, in Spanish and mixed tech, and would have had it running for a month straight? Mm. Right, yeah. The only way that this was possible was through this new backing, and if these two worlds don't communicate then no one's going to move forward. This is one of the potential solutions. It has led to a situation where we're still able to go and see this film in cinemas a month after the Netflix release. Yeah. So even though it could be consumed at home, people are going to theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People want to see this in theaters. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the reason why I went to go see it because it's really smart. You see it on Netflix and people are loving the film. So I think once you capture that audience and then they will want to go watch it in the theaters, which is very rare. I mean, if you really think about it for a film to do that. And it's I, a try before yeah. you buy situation, which right. which we don't usually get. Right. Because when you consider and well, there's another film that came out around this time, which is that Holmes and Watson film, 
mm-hmm. which had huge press and huge publicity. Mm-hmm. And then apparently, you know, they were saying people were walking out on opening day from from the theaters that it's the worst comedy ever yeah, made. Yeah, that's very unfortunate because I mean, you have. But it means you know yeah. people weren't aware of how good or bad it could be until it was released. Right. And they've already paid money to go and find out it's mm. no good. Whereas mm. with Roma, you, it, it's like, oh, I enjoyed it when I saw it on Netflix. I'll go and check it out at the cinema. I, it, it's bringing in people who yeah. might not have actually thought, oh, do I want to risk it? I'll just wait, wait till the DVD, Blu-ray streaming release. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. it's like a little, little sample. Another thing we need to remember is that critics aren't as listened to as they would like to believe. So you are more likely to go to the cinema if someone you know tells you a film is good. Ultimately, word of mouth is what really mm-hmm. can give a film legs. And that's been proven time and time and again. If critics line up and say this movie is a masterpiece, but the audience doesn't feel that way, then it won't make mm-hmm. any money. I think people should just accept the fact that there's not just one way to release a film anymore. You have all these different outlets and, and venues and ways of making a film that or distributing a film that I don't think it should be like that reporter asks. So there's this controversy of the death of independent cinema. But to me, it's just begun like it's now it feels more like it's going to be tons of independent filmmakers who get the chance to have the work out there, which There's, is really exciting. There will certainly be a bit of momentum following mm-hmm. this film. I think so too, yeah. And it's up to filmmakers to seize that opportunity mm-hmm. and come up with something great so that it keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. But yeah, so we'll start with reading the script uh, in Spanish, which I don't think I've ever read a script in Spanish, but I loved it. Um, I, I thought it was very detailed. It's kind of astonishing to see how detailed he is in what he's describing in the room or certain looks and or certain things but they all translate to the screen he was very precise in his writing he knew exactly what he wanted visually and he it's way more descriptive than a normal script i feel is it's 140 it does remind me more of a novel definitely a memoir would be probably the closest genre Mm -hmm. The, the whole thing is infused with memory Right. And he's trying to recreate memories throughout the script. Right. And uh, one of the most fascinating things I thought about the script for people who haven't read it is that the very first words in the script describe colors. And this is a black and white film. So he actually describes the colors, the yellow triangles inside the red squares. Oh, that's right. Yeah. On the patio floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we know it's black going white, to be yeah. filmed in black and white. And that just gave me this sense of he really is trying to recapture his, for the script, he's trying Mm. to recapture all of the memory and create this world Mm. that his actors will be able to fully inhabit. Just with a few pages of the script, they're able to know exactly where they are in the scene. They are able to place themselves in, into this specific era of Mexican history Mm -hmm. and just be immersed within because he's given them so many details about mm-hmm. what yeah. everything looks and feels and sounds and smells like. Yeah. Emotions it, too yeah. for the characters. He's very, like you said, very specific about performance too. He's got specific beats. He had a very specific vision and there were some things that were kind of cut out towards the end. 
There, there was me there were quite wrong, a few there edits, a few. yeah, and we'll cover those as we go through. Yeah, um, but whether or not any of them were yeah. useful, it's hard to tell with this kind yeah. of screenplay because so much is very metaphorical, mm-hmm. and we struggle. It just when you see when you read what you read, and then you see the scene that came out of it. Often there's pages and pages of description for yeah. a very short scene, yeah. and then you realize, well, if he took a scene out, we don't really know exactly what that would have come out like on screen because he was just really using this as a, a framework. Right. Because the photography involved in this film is just exceptional. It is. And you can do so much with just one one shot, one view of a particular place, right. which is something he uses to great effect, especially the very opening scene. Yeah. We're just watching a floor beam mopped for three minutes was it three minutes yeah it was a long it's time it's something like yeah. that yeah uh, with the credits rolling in front of it <laughs> and then finally the credits finish because it says written and directed by alfonso Cuaron, and it's still there like it's still the camera doesn't move you would almost expect the camera to move right after the credits are done but it's almost like he holds it just enough for the audience to think start questioning like when is this thing going to move mm-hmm. and then finally move it's almost like he's building anticipation Mm-hmm. out of nothing which is brilliant he's just holding you and i think that's just kind of how he draws you in and he just puts the camera there he just let it lets it sit and the story just starts unfolding in front of it i think that was part of uh what really worked for the photography is that it's not intrusive it really you're sitting there with these characters and the advantage of not cutting to other shots is that it creates the sort of realism that you're just there and you're just experiencing this in real time which mm-hmm. is pretty powerful. The anticipation is is very interesting because mm-hmm. it's also a risky move. It yeah. definitely alienated people who are not willing to give enough time to oh, the for film. for sure, yeah. Especially but, in today's world, for sure. But then you think, well, maybe those people don't really need to see the film either. They're not ready. It's, it's not for them. Yeah. If, if you can't appreciate what he's trying to do with that opening sequence, maybe it's not for you, and mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. We all have different tastes. Yeah. I feel you're missing out, but who knows? Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to bring up about the, just the sense of the screenplay itself and how it's written. This is actually something that comes up much later towards the end in, in the scene where the mother has all the kids and Cleo gathered around the table at the, at the beach mm. when they're on holiday. And she explains to them this oh, catastrophic yeah. moment that's, right. that's happening in their lives. And he, he writes, they do not know it yet, but this m- moment will stay in their memories as fragments of images, smells, sounds, and textures. So he even writes within the script what the script is. It, yeah. Because it, it's literally the output of this. Uh, this person who is now much more mature, is in his 50s, and is reflecting back on this time when he was a very young child. And piecing it all together and recreating that world just to explore it. Because, you know, what more can you do if all of life is subjective than to explore your own life in Mm. some way? It feels very personal when you're reading it. So for those of you that don't know, the film is it's based on Alfonso Cuaron's youth. But he does something that I think is really great, which is he's not telling it from his perspective. He's telling it from the perspective of the mate that pretty much raised him in his own words. 
we see in the story that she's the constant in his life and in the kids' lives. She's always there to take him to school, put him to bed, give them food. She's more of a mom than the actual mom. And I, th- I think that's part of the message. That's yeah. the person that was there for him. And exactly. so when he went back to make this film, he didn't think, oh, I'm going to tell my story. I think he went back and thought, who was the most important person in my life? It was this woman. So I'm going to tell my yeah. story through her eyes and I want to tell her story because her story is, she's an indigenous woman from the state of Oaxaca. And we don't, they're, they're never the protagonist ever in any film. Or even in Mexico where they have novelas and, you know, they do have maids in, in those novelas, but they're not the protagonist. And even when they are the protagonist, they're played by a white Mexican. If the, if the maid is going to be the protagonist, she's going to be white. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, people who, um, who think <clears throat> Hollywood has a problem with whitewashing really don't know. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's, it's very common, especially in Latin America. Just... Because, because it is hard to see how your culture is built from within sometimes. It's easier to see it from outside. So mm. we as observers from the United States m- might be able to see stuff that's going on in Mexico in a way that Mexicans cannot, mm. in the same way that they see things that happen here right. in very different ways to that's true. the way that it's reflected in the American public's imagination. That makes sense. It's it's very interesting what you said about how Cleo is more of a mother to the children than the, their actual mother because mm-hmm. those lines are really getting blurred at the home. Yeah, She's doing all the tasks with the children. She's waking them up and singing to them as they go to sleep. She's bringing them their clothes, their food, carrying their bags. And in one of the very first scenes, she goes to pick Pepe up from school. Pepe mm-hmm. is the youngest child and is Alfonso Cuaron. Mm. He, the character that represents him he's the youngest yeah the youngest uh, child and in one of those very first pieces of dialogue he calls her mama mm. so straight away yeah. the lines are becoming blurred because in the mind of this this five-year-old child he kind of does have two mothers he has his mother who is his actual mother who he sees in the evenings and then he has this other woman who's with him all day long and helps him with everything. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's becoming very blurred in his mind. Yeah. And he doesn't think there's a problem with that. He's just going with his instinct. He's going with the person that cares about him the most. And we see her wake up in the morning. We see her routine and we see all these things. We eventually get the sense of her routine, but not in like the morning, afternoon, evening type of thing. I think we see her when well, she has very little private life right. at all. Right. And and that's what so many of these domestic scenes are, mm. are trying to give us a sense of is just yeah. this is what she's going to spend I think it's 5 or 6 days a week doing and she lives on the property. And right. this is something that's changing right. in Mexico in Mexico in general. Now people do still have cleaners or cooks, mm. maybe even drivers, but they don't tend to have people who live on their, within their house anymore. Mm. It's more like a commute to work situation. Right. And there's a bit more protection in the, in the law for them. But Yeah, that, that stuff is yeah, it's changing a bit, which is good. But in, in this sense, you do most of the early shots are of her cleaning, washing dishes, mm-hmm. uh, picking up clothes. And, and again, the camera just sits there and it does, 
I love those shots where just sits in the middle of the house and then it's just kind of like going from room to room in the same shot and she's just going you just kind of follow her turning off the lights and and in real time like it doesn't try to speed it up or anything you're actually there with with her walking through everything one thing i just want to consider is how we get a sense of who cleo is as a person with very little dialogue and we get a bit of dialogue in in mixed tech between her and the, mm. the cook Adela. Right. But the first time for me that we really get any sense of who she is is when uh, Pepe and Paco are playing a game of spies yes. on the roof. Yeah. And she's she's telling them they can't to be careful while they play. So mm. um, Paco says that uh, Pepe has to die in the game because it's his game. And so but Pepe outsmarted him and shot at him and should have won the game, but he doesn't get to because he's the youngest. Right. So he just goes and lies down and pretends to be dead, and Cleo goes and lies with him, and she says she likes being dead. Yeah. And that, that I think, says a lot. Those few words when she's just lying there, kind of under the, under the sun, on top of the roof. Mm -hmm. she, there is something very profound there. Mm -hmm. I like pretending to be dead. Mm -hmm. It's better than life. Mm. And that's where we get this real sympathy for her, I think, originally. I also took it as the poor woman's always moving, always on her feet. She's probably not used to, like, in the middle of all that hustle and bustle for her to, like, actually lie down mm -hmm. and take her, her break. It also shows just the amount of stuff she has to do and the connection she has with the kids. I mean, mm -hmm. she just beams whenever she's in a scene with the kids, especially the earlier parts when she didn't go through as much. You know, she's got this. She's kind of on their level, smile. Yeah. not in a not in a way to, that's meant to belittle her, but she's definitely very innocent and and not not so mature. And mm. she kind of, that might yeah. also be why she kind of relates to the children a bit more. Interesting, because yeah. she's kind of on their level sometimes because she hasn't really mm. the biggest, most adult thing that's ever going to happen to her is what happens to her in this story. Mm. that's true actually the 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 mentality is kind of similar so so the story is pretty much you get her story which is the she's the main protagonist but we start getting a little bit of investment with the mom which is um uh, sophia so she has some problems with her husband and we start getting little senses of what might be going on and it's never really outright explained or there's not one big confrontation with her confronting her husband about cheating or anything it's all implied it's all again from the perspective of Cleo exactly we as an audience are going to be limited to what she could perceive and overhear exactly yeah. and and this is the kind of sense that the house has eyes in that they often treat her like she is just a part of the furniture yeah or a machine that works within the house but because she's a real person and she has all of her her emotions and her hopes and dreams and everything but she keeps so silent and she she takes this role almost of just a, an observer within the home because mm. the most dangerous thing would be to to speak out and challenge and oh yeah and, yeah, yeah. and it just is considered at least at the very beginning of the film and this is something that will change as 
as the story progresses, there is a barrier between the two women, mm-hmm. uh, which is due to their status. One as the the mistress and the other as the servant, essentially. Mm. There's always that sense that she can snap mm-hmm. and just turn on her and start treating her like dirt out yeah. of nowhere. And that, yeah. which, which is what happens in the earlier parts of the film when Sophia is really frustrated. And I think part of what makes it a really interesting uh, story is the fact that, at least for me, you understood her, what she was going through as well. She's going through her husband suddenly leaving her, leaving the children, essentially just dumping them. I mean, that must be hard on, on her for sure. And I think, you know, she's going through this emotional storm herself. So it never felt like she was the villain to me. It always felt... Not that it justifies what she does or makes it okay at all, but as an audience member, it felt I was emotionally invested, felt her pain, and it was never... Every, every character yeah. deserves sympathy because they are all quite on family. He is he's giving them a sympathetic yeah. portrayal. Even the father. He, he loves all of his family. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's clear, um, yeah. but he also isn't afraid to show their full human sides. Yep. Uh, he will show the anger and the pain, and mm-hmm. and especially with his eldest brother. And I don't know to what extent all of this is based on real events, mm-hmm. but the eldest brother in the script is an absolute bully mm-hmm. to all of the other children. And yeah. so that that's not a polite uh, representation. So either it's it's based on on what really happened and this this definitely does happen in in homes because the eldest child is always going to be slightly bigger and slightly stronger and mm. slightly more mature and sees the the less mature children as kind of an annoyance at times <laughs> you know? and that's so but that's he becomes so completely completely unbearable this character of Tonyo. Tonyo, which is so funny because that's my dad's oldest brother. His name is Tonyo, and my grandfather's name is Antonio, which is his dad's name in the script. But anyways, uh, even the dad, which is, I love his introduction. Up to this point, we were introduced to everyone, including the grandma, and we still haven't met dad. So we're introduced to everybody. So four children. Four children. The maid, the cook, even the driver. And the grandmother. And the grandmother and the mother. And the mother. So So we haven't seen the father. We have not. Which tells you something about their living situation as as well. Yeah. 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 Just in that day, because it covers a whole full day, uh, the first part of the film. And so he doesn't come home. And he comes home early. So you can imagine he's always late. Uh, So I love the cinematography in this scene. You know, the car pulling up to the house all these close-ups and I love when the car is pulling up to the camera and then it just kind of uh, holds on the crown which is on I forgot what kind of car is it it's a galaxy 500 galaxy 500 and like the logo the crown it's just kind of establishing that the king of king of the house has arrived um, and the way it's shot it kind of gives you that that sense of who's in charge and who's the patriarch here and he uh, drives over dog shit which I think is a little it becomes uh, a recurring theme. It's it's not so much in the in the script itself. Mm. So maybe when they saw it visually, they they thought they could play around a bit more with it. Mm. I was getting 
frustrated each time you see that that <laughs> that little uh like garage where they park the car because yep. you just see the the poops yes. accumulating over the days and it's like why won't someone clean this i would have been frustrated too just yeah but i, I also feel like it's <laughs> they like never a, get cleaned up <laughs> yeah I, always, I also feel like it's like a jab to to his dad it could be yeah you know that um, very first scene where we meet him and the dad runs over dog shit i think uh, there's a little point to be made there Mm-hmm. Well, there's something. So I took this scene to mean quite a lot, even though it, it it's it's told very metaphorically, symbolically. Let's mm-hmm. say. So I I get the sense that Alfonso Cuaron or Pepe, the character at this at the age of five, is not fully kind of aware, like a, like we saw with him confusing the lines between who is his mother. He's he's still kind of developing. Mm-hmm. And then his father, who's so absent most of the time, kind of gets abstracted into just being a presence. And there's mm-hmm. something kind of terrible or tyrannical about him in this black car. And when we first see the car, we don't see the person inside it. Mm-hmm. So we get this sense of him just as a a presence. And mm-hmm. he's invading, I, I think he uses the word, the, the beams of the, the car invade the entrance. And it's very phallic as well and there's all this precision it's very manly the whole way he does it he's got the cigarette in one hand every little inch steering that car perfectly to dock it inside and i get the feeling that this is kind of an accumulation of of memory itself there's this vague memory of this this particular car they used to have a cigarette that used to be in a hand the smell that that would have Mm. had and and little else and then he gets out the car, and when he gets out the car, it's just a man. He's just a normal man to us. But there's that whole scene where the car is coming in, he's not just a person. He's this imposing presence, which I just thought was yeah, no. such a fantastic allegory for what yeah. a child might see in, in a father that is absent. That's great, yeah. I completely get that. I think that was definitely done on purpose, and this is the only time we really get to spend with the dad i think there's a scene where they're all watching tv and i think it's the only time we see them as a family together they're mm-hmm. watching uh los polivoses which i grew up watching too because of my father mm-hmm. so i kind of that was yeah that kind of brought me back a little bit but yeah that's it that's the only time that we see him the next morning is when he uh he goes on uh, to quebec i think so that's the thing when when we first see see that scene mm-hmm. we don't know that this is actually him leaving her. No, um, it's it's no. it's obviously not established in any way that is is clear to the audience. He he gets yeah. up, he says goodbye to Pepe, yeah. and it's only when it's only when he's about to get in the car and she grabs onto yep. him, and she kisses him, and it's with such desperation yep. that you start to think she's she's trying to keep him. She's trying yep. she's trying to not lose him, but you don't know that this is this is the last time they're ever going to see him uh, at least for the the duration of the film no and 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 it wasn't but you i definitely got a sense just from that bit of performance that he was definitely cheating on her and he was not going to where he said he was going to go to mm-hmm. so there was definitely that and as for you know that was the one question i was i was asking myself is because we don't see him for the rest of the film until later on, which we'll, we'll talk about. He does make a little brief. Oh yeah, no, I'm, I know he does reappear in the film. I'm just saying. No, no, but yes, that that for the family, he's essentially gone. 
Yeah. Right. Well, that, that was a question I came out kind of asking myself, because even though we don't see him back with the family, there were certain things that hint at that he's gone to visit, mm-hmm. but it's just not seen. Like, it's just not in the film. Because it, he leaves, like, I mean, this is almost a year, and I feel like he does at one point go and, like, visit and, you know, but that's only implied until, like, very later on. But, yes, for months he's not there. So, yeah, so he's gone. Just mm-hmm. one thing I liked in the writing is when they're watching TV, Cleo kind of joins them for a second, but then almost immediately she's sent to get this cup of tea. Yeah. But then they never drink it. Mm. And it's just such a useless request that that they made for her to go and make something. Just keep yeah. doing something instead of just in, enjoying time with the family. But yeah. that's that's just kind of setting up for us as the audience a certain expectation so that as these barriers break down towards the end, mm-hmm. we can sense them getting closer. It, w- it wouldn't make sense if they were so close right at the beginning. It yeah. wouldn't have the same impact. So. I mean, it's little details like that that kind of just bring to our attention that social barrier, mm-hmm. social the class barrier. And another one is when she goes back to her house and they're doing exercises and mm-hmm. they have to turn off the lights because, you know, the grandmother doesn't want to waste electricity. Yeah. So they're, they're forced to. Yeah. So even they they have to turn off the lights. I read somewhere or I, I saw an interview where Alfonso Cuaron said that that's something he wasn't aware of until he started interviewing his Cleo, which is uh yeah i suppose why would why would his mom tell him that <laughs> why would yeah she let course, on that of course yeah do you remember the, the person you <laughs> loved the the maid that raised you yeah we didn't let her have electricity <laughs> that's yeah. uh, it's appalling right um, and then we get involved with Cleo's love story yeah so uh their love well the her first romance essentially and it's with a guy that there's there's obviously something a bit odd about him from the very first. Yep. They added in something in the film that wasn't in the script, which is that he he steals that last drop of coke off the table when they when the girls finish eating. Oh, that's so you right. kind of get the sense that he's a bit desperate. He must not have much money, right? Because he he said to them, "Oh yeah, I have already eaten," but then clearly he is thirsty or hungry or something. You know, he's not letting on that he's. He's, Interesting. He's yeah, poor. Pick that up, yeah. And yeah, by the time they're they're at the uh, the love hotel together, and he's doing his martial arts in the new, <laughs> you think, okay, this is a this is a weird guy. That was and so poor, funny. And poor Cleo, yeah. she doesn't know whether to laugh or I think she wants to laugh. She, she wants to laugh, but she but doesn't trying to be want to laugh because yeah. this guy has nunchucks in his hand <laughs> and doesn't look like he he'll see the funny side of it. So. He's but, so serious about it, you know, doing that whole routine for her mm-hmm. naked. And it's just... He it, believes that martial arts have saved him in some right. way. He's a fanatic. He is representing some part of the radicalization going on in in Mexico. And the, this is a clash that's going to happen throughout the film. The two sides are yeah. forming on the political spectrum. And th- right. there's also a big class divide that is going to exacerbate those left-to-right political divides. So Mexico is this. It's got the face of a democracy, but it's really a dictatorship. Cuadron is not going to lecture to us about it. He's just going to say, no. this, this is the world I grew up in. And no. these, are yeah. the, these are the kind of radicals who were around at the time. And yeah. this also wasn't necessarily a Mexican-only problem. And it was, it was partly being influenced by the United States as well. 
mm-hmm. and he uses that side story with Fermin to to convey all of this stuff to us. Well, that's the great thing about it is that we never get lectured any of this stuff. We never get an explanation. In fact, we don't even know what year it is, really, if you don't read the script and if you know nothing mm-hmm. about the film. So I went into the film not knowing any purposely, not wanting to know anything about it. So when you watch the film, it doesn't have your typical 13th of June, 1970. It doesn't give you the date. And even in the script, it tells you right off the bat, these are the dates, but these will not appear on screen. Yeah, the script for for people who are listening, it very clearly specifies the exact day of every single event. Right. And this is how meticulous he's been with organizing the story and all of his memories into this Mm -hmm. chronological order. But then again, after Cleo and Fermin sleep together for the first time, the script jumps two months. And you just you just can't tell on screen because mm-hmm. you would just naturally assume, oh, it's the next day back at work. But it, it actually does, when you look through the script, you can see the dates. And yeah. it, it jumps two months and she vomits in the morning. And that's the first sign that, that mm-hmm. she might be pregnant. And then in, on film, you don't need to know it was two months later. You piece it together in your mind like oh yeah some time must have passed and and i love that because he's not pandering down he's not trying to hold on you with yeah. dates or whatever so we don't know all of these political things like he doesn't lecture to us it's all in the background and for and it makes sense for this story because cleo's not involved in any of this she's just a spectator so everything we're seeing through her we're seeing all of this political stuff and it's always from a distance and politics don't matter much to no. the mates. That's the no. whole point until, well, let's say now the new president of Mexico is, is saying he's the man of the people. He represents the the poorest of the poor, but uh, mm-hmm. like up definitely through this period of, of history, who does it matter who's president? Will it change anything in, in Cleo's life? Not really, right? So. No. And we do get tidbits of other information through conversations with the kids, you know, at the kitchen mm. table. There's like a, a mention of something that Cleo kind of mm-hmm. alludes to. So she's not engaged. She's not really into it. So that means we're there's not a scene they removed where he mm. did explore it a bit more. I think, uh, yeah. So they they see the the words Leia written on yeah, the mountainside. Right. So Leia in Spanish means read, mm-hmm. and the kids think it. And they start asking their mother, why, why does it say read on the side of the mountain? And she, the mother explains, no, it's for, the, it's for the guy who's running for president. It's his initials. Mm. And Pepe, who is Alfonso Cuaron, says, I don't like him. Why does he paint on the mountain? It's not his. Which I thought was a nice <laughs> little yeah. way of, of seeing it. It's a good point. Right. Why would you do that? That mountain does appear later in the film when the Alcones are training that wonderful shot of them training in this very dusty field and yep. it is very reminiscent of japanese samurai movies but mm-hmm. in the mountain in the distance you can read leia on the yep. on the side of the mountain as well yeah those shots were breathtaking they were just gorgeous there's only a couple of interesting scenes after this point uh in particular the the cryptic scene where pepe is talking about i had a dream about when i was older i love that this is a very interesting scene. It's still mysterious to me. I did look up what Guillermo del Toro has an opinion on it. Huh. Uh, he he thinks it means that Cuaron believes that uh, life is cyclical and 
essentially you know the the idea of rebirth um reincarnation reincarnation uh different possibilities yep. in life coming round and round again and uh, and the cyclical nature of of history in that sense as well that mm. that we kind of all repeat certain patterns but again i don't think this is something that's ever fully i think it's left for you as an audience member to enjoy simply to just enjoy that little um yeah aside from the five-year-old kid who's saying something it really kind of comes out of nowhere but i really liked it I, it kind of gave it a i don't know it's just a nice touch and it comes back again mm-hmm. um towards, towards the, the end, end yeah and, and i kind of found that really interesting well it's definitely a fun mystery yeah i like it for the audience yeah. to just consider and mm-hmm. maybe there's no right answer to this one i don't think so okay cleo has found out she's pregnant she yep. wants to tell her boyfriend mm-hmm. and yes this scene in the script is way more explicit way and it, more. it really humiliates <laughs> her and yeah. i'm sure that when he had found his his actress and had, he's recreated this maid that he loved when he was so young. He thought, I don't think I want to do this to her. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it will or maybe add. she didn't want to do it. Or maybe, know? yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a very interesting development. I'm, I'm glad they took it out. Me too. Uh, I think it was it, a little, it was unnecessary. I don't think it It's very explicit. Anything. It, it, it reduces her, it humiliates her, and just adds to this whole sense of, well, then he goes and leaves her. It's basically that he's using her one more time before before he's going to just disappear yeah. and abandon her with this pregnancy. Yeah. So, But it was very shocking. You can also tell Quadon's love of cinema kind of coming back in all these mm. scenes because he's carefully picking what films he wants to be on the screen in the background. He's picked the perfect theater in Mexico City that he wants. He really recreates this whole love of cinema which a lot of great directors do that that yeah. film within a film kind yeah. of thing and that and for that particular scene what i noticed the last time i saw it was right before there's a plane crashing down falling out mm-hmm. of the sky and right before it crashes he tells her oh i need to use the restroom and then boom the the plane crashes on screen so it's just kind of his I'm out. Yeah, he loves. Quadron uh, loves using these these metaphors and yeah. coincidences throughout the film. You you get a sense that things are predetermined. You get mm-hmm. a sense that there are omens. Yeah, and it's very subliminal. Like I didn't notice it the first two times that I watched it, but this last one I was like, wow, that was like right on cue. And yeah, poor Cleo is uh, left pregnant, and the struggle, the obstacle afterwards is she's worried about her job. She's worried about telling Sophia. So after she's been abandoned by uh, her boyfriend or the guy who left her pregnant, she now is fearing for her job. So she has to tell Sophia that she's pregnant. And we really feel for her. We don't know how she's going to react. We don't know if Sophia is going to fire her or, or who knows. I mean, we know that Sophia is on edge. We know that she can like explode at any moment at this point. And for good reason. She, and it's such an awkward moment she chooses because she she thinks it's a quiet moment and then suddenly it's like all the kids are there and yes sophia yeah. is saying well we have to write a letter to dad and tell him we miss him and you can sense that that's like her weapon that she's going to exactly. try and use she's to, so desperate to, to, to get, get him back. to feel guilty and come yeah. back yeah so she's using every tool at her disposal to to get him back so she definitely chooses the wrong moment but nonetheless this is where 
Sophia shows her humanity because she doesn't flip. She she's actually understanding and offers to help her, which I think really layers her character really nicely. It's not just black and white. It's a very beautiful scene. The the whole family together, and it's it's one of the first moments that we really get a sense that they're going to become a unit together in the absence of the father. Yes, and it's because Sophia immediately offers her support and offers to take her to the hospital and Pepe comes in. Yes. And he sees Cleo is crying. Yes. And he asks his mother, why is Cleo crying? And his mother says it's because her stomach hurts. So he goes over and he says this, this little ditty, which you will say nicely for us in Spanish. Yeah. Sana, sana, colita de rana. Si no te alivias hoy, te alivias mañana. Which means pretty much heal, heal. If you don't feel good, by today, you'll definitely be healed by tomorrow. Yeah, it's like a little uh, poetic remedy. Yeah, and it, it's just yeah. it's just so nice that mm-hmm. he's he's trying to help with the little yeah, it, uh, power that he has as a, a it's child. It's just pure innocence, pure yeah. innocence of, of a kid. They end up going to the hospital, and there's potentially an ulterior motive for Sophia going to the hospital oh, yeah. because her husband oh, yeah. is, is a doctor. So she also, by going and taking Cleo in, she gets an opportunity to talk to his co-workers and try and find out. Right. Because maybe at this point she is still under the impression he has actually gone away. Because as we will later find out, he is a lot closer than than. Oh, right. He's, he's, yeah, he's actually there. Um, but I think she knows pretty much that he's with another woman. Yeah. Because in exactly, the previous yeah. scene, you know, he's having that conversation with, with her mom and her mom says, you know, you have to be strong for, for the children and, yeah. But oh, just, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So that is established at that point. It's but it is clear she she wants some she wants to know why. Yeah. Definitely. She yeah. wants to figure out as much as she can. She she still is expecting at the very least support from the husband that has abandoned her because she's got four children to raise by herself. Mm-hmm. Then there's also this there's also what Cleo has to go through, which is to go and be examined and she's not prepared for it and she's so shy and she's not comfortable talking about sex because it's such a new thing to her and she's 26 and this is the first man she's ever slept with and suddenly she's pregnant right and uh yeah Yeah. and she's about to find out and then there's this so i have a very i have a a theory that i'm trying to develop about some of the things that happen in the film but this theory is weakened by the fact i've only found three pieces of evidence as opposed to the four that i would need which is that there are these motifs of the traditional elements mm-hmm. uh, that reappear. So the earth, wind, fire, and I was water. playing with those two, yeah. So the, the hospital is a scene in which the earthquake happens. Mm-hmm. And she's staring at the, the babies uh, that are recently born. And suddenly this earthquake happens and the other people that are there drop to their knees and start praying. And she's just stood there because she's in shock and she doesn't know what to do. And some some of the ceiling falls down onto one of the incubators where one right. of the, the babies is. The, so this motif for me reappears throughout the film. So there's the earthquake, there's the big fire, there's the sea almost killing the children. There's definitely this strong power of the elements mm-hmm. that is being reflected. And there's a lot of the sky in it, but I just can't figure out what the fourth equivalent would be to this. But I do think he was trying to play around with some sort of theory of Balancing the elements, balancing the heavens and the earth in in some way. Hmm. Uh, there's definitely something at play there for sure. I don't know 
if they're what the exact things are but i feel like for example the earthquake there's a seismic shift now in her life you know she's she's having a kid that she doesn't necessarily want or 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 ask for so her life just changed and and then later on we have a fire that i think the scenes right after that intensify so mm-hmm. it's almost like a that's kind a of the middle point there. of the film yeah, yeah. cuz it gets way more intense after that and to me we'll talk about it a little bit later but to me the ocean kind of felt like a cleanse of sorts mm, yeah it really felt like it was water purifying because if we see the the beginning shot it was all this water going down this drain and it's full of soap full of dirt that is precisely and exactly then at the end that. we get mm-hmm. more of a cleanse and actually the, we'll get to it more later but the last shot is the sky mm-hmm. which to me kind of signifies a little bit of purity after the hospital scenes actually mm-hmm. the next place they go is to the new year's retreat and yes. <clears throat> this does take up a l- big part of the script mm-hmm. it actually doesn't take up so much time on screen as the script would have you think because he yeah. he paints these enormous pictures of yes. this, the scenes he's got in mind and he dedicates three pages to the scene where these families are, are shooting guns in the forest this is this person and then this person is this mm-hmm. person related to this person so you're getting a full so much explanation of it yeah as a reader it's not that interesting uh, right. obviously the screenplay is not just for reading pleasure it's also for figuring out who needs to be in what scene and what they need to be doing mm-hmm. so i do understand that but that was a bit i wanted to kind of jump over a bit in the screenplay because i i didn't think that scene represented enough to to really I spend agree. a lot of time dissecting i agree there's there's uh we start to really kind of amplify the sense of division between the working people and the upper middle classes of which sofia's family is a part of so you have you have them with all their friends and they're not then they're not even all mexican there's there's americans mm. and norwegians and people of various descent yeah. of more european descent right. and they're clearly all very affluent and they've got this big uh, property that they live on and it's described in the script as kind of like an homage to the the uh, porfiriato which was the, the early dictatorship mm. of mexico and the the latifunda system which is kind of like this big it, that's a word that kind of comes from mm. from the roman period but it's essentially like these big farms that that produce everything and uh, it's not a small holding it's a, it's a big property that they have i think there's a lot of uh, foreshadowing in in this whole section as well it's almost like almost like a prologue to everything that's about to unfold afterwards mm, yes but i will say that i think the reason why his script was so descriptive was because i think he really wanted to like you say paint the pictures and for the actors and everybody involved to read it they know exactly what the scene needed to be and i will say he never showed the script to anybody he wrote a script that only he himself really knew he didn't show any of his actors any of it really until the day of so they only got to see the scene that they were going to shoot that day they didn't know their story arc they didn't know where they were going to end up which i found fascinating for him to do which is kind of true to life you know as a person you don't wake up knowing what what's going to happen to you that day so i think he decided to apply that sense of realism to these actors mm-hmm. and especially to someone like uh Yalitza who plays Cleo who's not a formal actress at all she was picked from a town in Oaxaca and her first time acting and he didn't tell her what would happen 
in the critical scene. It's really good because it means that she can't compromise her performance in an earlier scene by knowing what's going to happen to the character. Right, later. right, exactly. Although there is a foreshadowing in this particular sequence during the whole New Year's. There is. So when they arrive, yeah. uh, she's greeted by another maid and they're carrying all these mm -hmm. bags back. There's a very interesting, what I think is actually a very macabre comparison because mm -hmm. they go into this room and they have all these dogs' heads <laughs> up on the wall. I thought that was really funny, actually. But yes, it's 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 funny because it's dark, though. Because it's my perception of it was actually the the owners of this house are they see their animals as their loyal servants and they put their heads up on the wall. Yeah. And then when you see where all of the the workers and the maids are celebrating New Year's. They go down these stairs and it's a place full of animals. It's full of dogs and there's, I think there's like a goose down there or a chicken there's or something. There's like dogs having dogs, sex. Dogs, that's it, yeah. Um, and they're literally down with the dogs. Yeah. And I think there's something really kind of cruel in, yeah. and, or just dark in that comparison where you've got these maids looking up at all these, these dogs' mm. heads on the wall. That's interesting. And it's kind of asking that question of where do they stand in this family? That's interesting. Because even the dogs are getting remembered and celebrated, right. but in a very dark kind of yeah. freaky way. Yeah, but yeah. then it's also to who's celebrating the mates, who's, who's celebrating the workers, the men and the women that work for them. And then that's in a stark contrast to what Quaron does by creating this script where he does everything to celebrate the mm -hmm. maid and makes her the central character and brings her out from the shadows that everyone in her profession has occupied until this point. I feel like he was really trying to make a statement with, with that scene. That's an interesting perception. When I first watched it, I thought it was just really funny. I mean, mm -hmm. I just laughed so much. I'm like, that is like the weirdest thing. There's just something about that scene that's just so darkly hilarious. But now that I see your perspective that's I might just be very dark um, <laughs> we were both in very different moods when we watched that scene so there are these two parallel yeah. parties there's an upstairs oh, downstairs yeah, yeah, sure, situation yeah. and the party downstairs is way more Mexican they've got the traditional music yep they've got the traditional drinks they've got pulque and mm -hmm. well aguardiente I'm not sure if it's fully Mexican but I'm it's definitely sure, yeah. Latin American. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got these the more traditional drinks, and upstairs they're listening to the to the the songs on on vinyl records, and right. the, they're dancing and they're drinking champagne and stuff. So it's a, it's a completely parallel world, the one downstairs to the one upstairs. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the main omen, which I think you're probably planning on mentioning, Cleo and her her friend are toasting to the baby's health. And some drunk woman accidentally pushes Cleo and Cleo spills her drink. The drink that's to toast to the baby's health. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a shot of the drink spilled in a and broken glass. Open, yeah. And the, you kind of linger on that for, for a few seconds. And I think that kind of gives you a hint. Didn't yeah, the first it's, time. It's a bad omen. It's a bad exactly. omen. I, I thought nothing of it when I saw it the first time. But definitely on repeat, you're like, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. A significant thing that happens when she comes back upstairs is she sees Sophia being kind mm -hmm. of harassed by one of the other guests, of, of one of the family friends at the party. Right. And he's, he's just saying, oh, I was just trying to um, 
I was just trying to console you. I was just trying to help you out. And she pushes him away. But then there's just this beautiful shot of it is Cleo and Sophia looking at each other from across that vast, mm-hmm. vast distance between their two worlds. Mm-hmm. And there's that sense that they can't be in the same world together in that sense. And also, again, we're we're getting to see Sophia's story, but through Cleo's exactly. interpretation. But we can only see her story as a voyeur through Cleo's right. eyes. Yeah. Right. But, but we're still getting a full picture. Like, obviously, we know that her friends now know, and her friends are obviously trying to be there for her. This isn't spelled out, but just by the simple thing that he just said that you just said he said which is you know i'm just trying to console you obviously he knows which means her friends know which means this isn't a known thing Mm -hmm. so i mean it it leaves you up to your imagination to like fill in those gaps but it's pretty clear just by one sentence you know exactly where she is i think in that scene as well quite honest just trying to draw attention to the fact that uh his mother is suddenly the object of sexual harassment again Mm. It's not that she needs a man to protect her, but within the society, the idea that she's suddenly single kind of diminishes her status because people don't believe that women can be by themselves. Uh, they always need to have a man. It's just right. an unquestioned fact of, of the society at this time. Right. And then Cleo goes and looks out over the forest and that's a really beautiful shot. Yes. And you don't realize what it is at first. You think, is it fireworks? Is it some sort of something happening in the stars? What is this? Right. And then you re- everyone starts shouting, fuego, fuego, and running out. And you realize it's there's a fire has broken out in the forest. And right. in the script, he specifically mentions that it's a place where they were shooting the guns before. Mm-hmm. So there must be some symbolism there as well. The, it's, it's an odd scene. It's, it's very beautifully shot. But you have this uh, this character who has been running around dressed as a monster mm-hmm. who then starts the countdown to New Year's Eve and everyone's fighting the fire and he's drunk and he's... You notice this, right? This, mm-hmm. this guy and then he goes and takes off the helmet right at the end. And he starts singing. And he starts singing. This was very cryptic for most people. Mm-hmm. The script does shed some light on what that is because he describes it as the... Nitarbuk, a Norwegian song sung at midnight on New Year's Eve. So that's that's what that was. If anyone didn't know, because we didn't, didn't know, know what it was no. when we when we saw it, I had no idea. But um, so that's the yeah. significance. I guess it's just to draw attention to the fact that this year is not starting out well for anyone. Um, yeah, and, and precisely at the moment of New Year's Eve, the whole forest is on fire. Right. And I think this is something that's kind of happening inside both of them. As later on, we, we realize what Kaleo was going through her pregnancy, which isn't revealed to us right away how she, exactly she feels about having a baby until the very end of the film. But putting that into context and putting into context what Sophia is going through and this whole thing burning, I mean, it's kind of what is happening to them in the inside. But, you know, the thing about the fire is that it also represents purity. In a way. It's rebirth. And it's rebirth. This yes. is something that's that's quite well known as well. That if there are certain uh, trees that have resistance to fire, exactly, and so they actually need controlled forest fires to happen. Yes. So that they can continue to grow because it it kind of clears 
the smaller plants and, and weeds from out from under them and stops them attacking the trees so those, those main trees in the forest can continue to keep growing. So, you know, correct. there is something to do with renewal in the fire. Yeah, that's it. It mm -hmm. became the motif of the phoenix in and culture eventually, you know. Yeah, that's a good point that it is a rebirth of sorts. It's foreshadowing pure danger. Yeah, that's like a seismic shift. Well, after the fire, there's a nice scene in the countryside where Cleo mentions how it reminds mm. her of her village. I love that scene, yes. It's a beautiful yeah. scene. She says it smells like home, it looks like mm -hmm. home, sounds like home. I really liked the way she was describing it and then like kind of going off her reaction and doing that whole 360. And this is, this is a black and white film and yeah. it's full of contrasts both yeah. on screen and actually in the things that happen. And then so after this particular scene where she's enjoying the countryside, suddenly they're back in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. There's a trip to the cinema with the kids mm -hmm. and she's... She's having to chase after Tonio and his friend Beto, who have run ahead, taking advantage of the fact that the grandmother and Cleo can't keep up with them, and just run through the city. And the, you're just suddenly back in this completely contrasted world of huge buildings, yeah. lots of noise, people smoking, people bumping mm. into each other, cars honking, everything, the noise of the traffic. Yes. It's just overwhelming. And I will add, yeah. I just recently found out that for the sound design, that Alfonso Cuaron actually had dialogue for all the extras. So he actually recorded over, I think, 20 com different conversations, and they were all added and layered in into the soundtrack. So that's why the sound is so good. Listening to it, surround sound, you start really picking up the details. It's like really bringing the city alive, mm -hmm. not just visually, because visually he also put a lot of detail into the cars and the type of signs that they had. Like, I feel like, our direction he went all out but the sound really just makes it come alive very immersive and it's uh yeah no i thought that was really really great just the level of detail that he puts into it was amazing and he designed the scene where they run ahead to the cinema as a way mm -hmm. of tonio sees that his father is still in mexico city and he's running around with his mm -hmm. new girlfriend but he actually improves the writing of that i think for the version on the film beto actually is saying to tonio Hey, that was your father. That was your father. And right. you're saying, that wasn't my father. Uh, I think when it was just visual, it wasn't too clear that they could have recognized him. Yeah. Because be it happened so quickly. It's exactly. just a face in the crowd. And also as an audience member, you might not have remembered him. Exactly. Because he Cause you've seen him out once. very little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was a good call. Yeah. So that was, that was a good example of an improvement in mm -hmm. just in the structural way of if you need the audience to know something and you're going to do it that quickly, you might need to spell it out for them. Mm -hmm. And then there's another contrast because she goes to the city of, well, the, what should we call it? The suburb of Nesawakoyantan. He, he describes it as se respira la miseria. Literally, oh, yeah, you yeah. just breathe in the misery. This yeah, is where that. poor people really live. Right. And this is actually where her, the father of her child, Fermin, is mm -hmm. training and where he lives. Yeah. And it's, it's clearly become a radicalized kind of place as mm -hmm. a result. And there's American uh, army there training the soldiers. And the Korean, apparently. Mm -hmm. And those were some very beautiful shots, too, of the entire, uh, I don't know what they're called, but it had a very sort of Japanese and look to it. Uh, and also, I thought it was a very funny scene because you have this revered man, I guess, who's teaching them how to stand in one leg. 
and like do put their arm like put their arms above their head and do like a triangle shape and like kind of teach them balance and then you have Gleo who's on the sidelines with all the other women and people not included but they're trying the same thing no one can do it so it's supposedly something you'd have yes. to train over and over again Mental to be able to do to do yeah but and Cleo's Cleo, doing it and Cleo can do it yeah. immediately which yeah. uh, gives you the sense that there must be some inner strength and inner balance with for her yeah the again we don't know enough about her a lot of the time mm. so we have to see through her actions and yeah this is, this is a very interesting moment in in the script she then goes to try and chase after Fermin. Yeah. Doesn't really work. He's not interested. He insults her. He calls her. Yeah, not only is he not interested, yeah. he's very violent about it. I mean, yeah. he like yells at her and does his like karate moves or whatever, <laughs> which again is so funny when he does that because he's so serious when he does it. And it's just hilarious. But he pretty much says, you know, if you if I ever see you again, you know, I'm going to beat you up and just goes away. And she's just stuck with raising the kid on her own at this point. Uh, a, yeah, there's a few more interesting scenes that follow. Paco overhears his mother on the telephone, kind of talking to one of her friends about what's really happened. Scene, yeah, that's us through observation being able to find out what happened in the relationship because right. you have to find it out through overhearing things. You can't, mm -hmm. you don't get to see it unfold on the screen, which is yeah really nice. It also shows the desperation in her, the way she slaps a kid, and then almost immediately blames her outburst on Cleo, yeah. who has just stood there in uh, like a deer caught in headlights because yeah. she can't go over and drag the kid away from the door either. She's she's just trapped just right. in that situation. Right. And there is that sense that she's always going to be trapped in these situations because of her position in the family. She's never yeah. going to be an equal member. She really can't do much about it. And also you have Sophia who's on the phone talking to, we're assuming her, her comadre, her friend, Pretty much from the snippets that we get is that her husband hasn't been sending them money and now he's spending money on his new girl. Yeah, yeah so Paco is, uh, he hears his mom in distress. He's just curious. He wants to know what's going on. And what I took from that scene is she's in so much pain. And when she comes out, there's just, he's the only thing there. That's the only outlet for that energy, for that pain, that hurt. She automatically realizes what she does and hugs him. And, but like you say, now she's looking for, her pain's looking for a new victim. And Glela's right there. So again, these are the moments where I felt that wasn't right, but I understood. And it didn't justify what she did. But at least I think it allows the audience to have empathy for her. Because she's not just being violent for the sake of being violent this is a hurt woman now she has four kids that she has to raise on her own so I, it was interesting to see that because the scene following that you have uh paco and Tonyo getting into this huge fight which ends with paco throwing this heavy uh, i think it was like an egg made of stone yeah an, an ornament they have in the house yeah right it's really heavy goes throws it the at, window. yeah throws it at Tonyo. Tonyo barely ducks goes through the window and hits Ciao, the the windshield of the car. And to me, that seems like a commentary on the cycle of violence. And it shows his family falling apart. Without a unifying force, they're just going to be at each other's throats. We then have a lovely contrast 
when Sophia tries to drive the galaxy home. And we already know she's not a great driver because she's damaged it in an earlier scene. But when she tries, when she's drunk and she tries to park it, she absolutely destroys the car. Oh yeah. And part of the wall. Yeah. And she's clearly having a bit of a breakdown. She's losing mm -hmm. her sense of self, her faith in herself and her ability to cope. And when she gets out of the car, she just says to Cleo, we're alone. We she alone. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're always alone. And that's probably the most sympathetic portrayal of their situation that you could expect. And Quaron really has grasped exactly the plight that they have. Yeah. The difficulties of, of this life where the men simply don't support them. They just abandon. They're both abandoned by, by men who should have been there for them based on their, their relationship. The Corpus Christi Massacre is going to be the next big scene. And it actually starts out just a day like any other, I suppose. It's, no one knows that this terrible thing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just Teresa, the grandmother, and Cleo going to buy a crib for the baby. That's, right. that's yeah. all they're going for. And suddenly this huge thing, this huge event breaks out, which is students are demonstrating you get this wonderful shot of all the police. And I don't know if you remember Lane, the French film that was in black and white that was about all of the police brutality and the situation in Paris in the 90s. Mm, but there's so. a sh that shot is very similar to Lane. It just kind of scrolls across all of these riot police just waiting for something to happen. I don't know if it was a homage to that film or not. But there's also these other mysterious guys who are in plain clothes who have infiltrated the student protest mm -hmm. yeah and that is Fermin's gang that right. is the Alcones. Los Alcones, the Falcons and they are going because the police are not the ones who are specifically killing innocent people it's more to do with this this kind of paramilitary group that they've allowed to take part in the riot because the worse that it gets the more repression the government can mm. can later use mm. by saying things are so out of control that people are being killed and and so on. Right. It's yeah. it's very shocking, but it's this is the reality Quadon wants us to to hear about. But also again, not through these people being protagonists, then Cleo's not going out and demonstrating. But it's this event that's going to it, it causes her to go into labor and she looks eye to eye at Ferdmin as her water breaks right. as he comes up into the, the shop where she is. Right. It's just, that's, that's the heartbreaking moment, even yeah. not only is he not going to be there on the day that she gives birth, but he's also out murdering and beating people up in the street. And it's just, yeah, that's, that's yeah. the divide between them. It's a huge divide. I think, I mean, she's kind of lucky that he didn't stick around. If you, if you really look at it, <laughs> you wouldn't want to kid being raised by a person like that but again yeah. we're seeing this huge event unfolding and you have the shot is epic when you look yeah. out the window and you've got all these people running the chaos and there's hundreds the of extras yeah. and it could have easily been a temptation for him to create these like very epic master shots of but it's their perspective so you're seeing it through the window you don't even get to go outside and be with these people i mean he mm -hmm. could have you have hundreds of extras but he didn't do that because that's not the story. And something more important is happening. And that's right. and that the Cleo is about to give birth. Yeah, and the danger comes to them. So they're 
and it's very effective because all of a sudden the danger is outside and you think it's safe because they're, yeah, it's, they're a, it's the almost saying you can't live in isolation you can't just block out what is happening outside if if things are politically unstable if there's violence in the streets it's going to affect everyone you can't just be blind to it you can't pretend it's not happening right it's happening yeah and it's going yeah. to impact everyone yeah and also like i think the danger coming to them because they momentarily seem kind of safe and then you have these people with guns coming inside and i think that's a very effective scene because all of a sudden it's right there with them the danger yeah in terms of technique and organization it's the high point of the film i agree yeah no it's astounding and again the the, the cameras are never immersed there's never really any sort of like moving cameras moving with the with the characters it's always in one place and kind of just rotating almost like they just put a rotating camera in every shot almost but it kind of gives you the sense of a memory because you're watching it from like one mm -hmm. position it's not it's not visceral it's not immersive you're not with the uh, characters or it's like very much from one point of view so it kind of does give that illusion of a memory yeah and the fact that it's in black and white this is the first time it gives it that documentary feel that mm -hmm. that archival footage feel yeah. i really like that yeah no it was great and again the sound and everything was was pretty majestic so her water breaks and now it's not just about people being killed now it's like she needs to get to a hospital and uh, all the ASAP. streets are going to be blocked and they have that, that's huge... what they find she's just in the car suffering and, right. and they can't even get to the hospital for so long and when they get to the hospital it's full of people who have been injured exactly. in the, in the yeah. chaos and it's obviously <clears throat> just a complete shambles everything that's happening in the yeah. in the hospital the poor grandmother doesn't even know enough about cleo to give all of her details yeah. to the the nurse at the reception right the poor grandmother has a breakdown too yeah but cleo does find her dog and in the elevator they find the father right, Antonio, Antonio himself right. yeah and he he leans over and he says Cleo it's uh, it's going to be okay hold my hand breathe but when they get out of the elevator and this is just it, it's it's I think it wasn't actually written as harshly in in the script and they made it sound even more harsh because he says something like oh but the the doctor's not going to let me come with you to the uh, maternity ward mm. And she's like, "Oh, of course you can if you if you want to come." And he says, "Oh, but I've 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 got an appointment with a patient." Right, right. You think he's he's a bit of a bastard, but then again, this is a guy who's already abandoned his wife and his kids. So, do you expect him to do any more for the maid of the family he right, left? Right. <laughs> and besides, there's not really that much he can do, and I think it's just awkward because he knows. It's definitely that she knows. awkward. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just. And maybe he's him, worried his ex-wife is going to turn up. So. Exactly. Anywho, yeah, so she's, uh, we start, this whole sequence in the hospital is so well done. I think they used actual doctors and nurses to, to do the scene. I don't think there were actors. So that gave it another sense of realism because everything's so automatic, very procedural. There's no emotion attached. You get the sense that the baby's in trouble. The, the guy that things the, aren't going right yeah the doctor can't hear the the heartbeat and all of a sudden the the stakes are a little bit higher but in true format the doctors are not panicking they're doing their job and we are the ones that start panicking and then 
And it was all one shot, I believe. She was set on the bed, and then everything's kind of happening in the background. They finally take the baby out, and it's not breathing. It's, it's not. It's quite moving. clearly dead at the moment. You see it, but right, yeah. They have to. They have to try. Yeah. And they try, and there's nothing that can be done. And that is like a really heartbreaking. You know, they they have, especially for when they filmed the scene, she didn't know the actress didn't know that the baby was going to die. She just read a script, which in hindsight, that's kind of mean, but she didn't know. Like, in, She just knew that the baby was going to be born. And so out of that came a very, very real reaction to finding I'm out that her, of the baby What is dead. going on? Yeah. Because the, this is supposed to go one particular way. Mm-hmm. And you find out it's not going that way. At all. It's meant to be the moment of birth, the celebration of a new life. And it's actually straight to the funeral. The baby is wrapped up before our eyes and is going straight to a morgue. And it's a scene that was very unexpected as an audience member too, watching it. It it got me to the point where I was literally like very invested. In... And you have the camera exactly at her level. Right. And you're, you're kind of with her. You're yep. a spectator next to her mm-hmm. in the bed. And it's, yeah, it's very... It's it's a very shocking scene. It's very heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, watching it in because I saw it the first two times at home, and then watching it in theaters, feeling the reaction from the audience was really telling as to what everyone was feeling. I mean, people were really crying during that scene. Yeah, it's a very hard scene to watch, and we cut to so this is where the script in the film kind of there's some stuff left out from the script. So in the scene that didn't make it to to the film, pretty much Sophia going into the hospital room with Gleo, and it's just described as this very tender moment of one broken woman reaching out to another, and Gleo just not being receptive to that gesture. It's being described because she's just in shock, and she's probably not feeling much, and she's kind of checked out at this point. Which, I mean, we, I, I can see maybe why he took that out because we do get a lot of that anyways after that scene. You know, we can see that she's checked out. There's this very long shot of her just sitting on her bed and just kind of has this glazed look on her face. Yeah, she enters a very profound depression. Yeah, and I think um, they eventually do get that moment at the end, Cleo and, and Sophia, so maybe he didn't want to... But the birth is the critical moment of the screenplay, mm-hmm. and there's a sense of... Things could never be the same again after that. But it's also the point where where Sophia makes a conscious decision to move on and start to fix her own life. Yeah. So she starts by selling the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. The car's too big anyway. She can't drive it, so she gets a smaller car. Mm-hmm. She starts to fix things. And then when she wants to take the kids on one last holiday to, to the beach in Veracruz to have this kind of like last goodbye for the car, she says, but really it's so that her husband can go in and take all of his stuff. She doesn't want to be there when he comes back. But she invites Cleo along and she says, of course, Cleo, you're going to come with us, right? Right. And Cleo, she's she's almost shocked because Sophia's saying, but you're not going to work. You're coming and you're going to be on holiday just like us. But we also see she's checked out then, like she mm-hmm. just has. Oh yeah, very she's little, she's very cautious, you know. and but she's also shocked by the idea right. that she's yeah. she's being invited. But this is when they really start to form mm-hmm. the 
final bond, this final unification of the family needs Cleo to be a part of it. Yeah. Because Sophia can't do it all by herself. And Cleo can't do it by herself. So they're going to need each other. They're going yeah. to become stronger together. Yeah. Which uh, leads us to, I believe they go to... To Tuxpan. Tuxpan. Veracruz. Veracruz, right. And uh, so they go on this final little vacation to, like you say, say goodbye to the car, which mm-hmm. represents the dad. And it quite it very much represents the father. And quite literally, yeah. the dad is taking all his stuff. So literally, mm-hmm. he is leaving. So there's a lot of... Uh, that's obviously what this ending means. It, it is about, to me anyways, it is about moving on. Mm-hmm. Everything that wasn't working, dying. Mm-hmm. But we do get... And this it. is when Sophia comes clean to the children as well. And says, yeah. your father didn't go on a trip, she says. And it's very interesting in the script, the way that Guadon writes it, because it's kind of like the children falling like dominoes. Uh, by age, they are able to understand what she's saying. So Tonyo is the first one to understand. Then Paco, who's the next youngest. Then Sophie, the girl, who's mm-hmm. the third youngest. And only poor Pepe is the only one who's left confused by the whole conversation because he's too young to, to understand mm-hmm. really what's happened. It's very interesting how he, he incorporates that into the script. That mm-hmm. Sophie doesn't really quite get it at first, but then she starts to, to latch onto the idea. And poor Pepe is just there, not really ever knowing what what happened because the whole idea of divorce, mother, father, it's he's basically spent a large part of his conscious life without a father at this point. I think the one that was most severely affected by this was Paco. Because like you say, the oldest one, he's a bit of a bully. So And he's his, toughened up. He he won't show that he's yeah, weak or anything. Yeah. Exactly. At this point he's a little disclosed off to his feelings. So Paco is like at the perfect age where he does understand what's going on and young enough to be just receptive to it and just feeling it without having to filter himself or cover that up. So we kind of feel their pain through through him in that scene. But she does a really good job and, and the character as to trying to... So it's so believable and so it tender. It is, yeah. It's also a very nice touch that it's very similar to the scene towards the end of Itumama Tambien, which is also this kind of big reveal at this uh, beach uh, restaurant yeah, right. as well. That's so right. he, he... Very similar. He did reuse that, that motif, yeah. Yeah, I think, that's right. Which was really nice. We'll go to the beach scene, which is critical. And you've got a strong interpretation of that. So I'm going to let you explain your view on it. For me, it tied into the different elements that we'd had. Mm-hmm. Earth, fire, sky uh, at the beginning and end, and then... Mm-hmm. This water, this is the most significant scene with, with water as an element. It's, it's already established, good writing as well, that Cleo can't, can't swim. Mm-hmm. So everyone knows the stakes involved. Yeah. And Sophia is not able to take care of all the children. They're a handful to have four of them. Mm-hmm. So she's doing one thing. The kids want to go and play by the sea. Yeah. Uh, but the sea is strong. It's too powerful for these these young children that don't know how to swim. So... So the scene starts with Sofia going to the car with Tonio and leaves Cleo with the rest of the kids there. And and what's really great about the scene is that it starts planting in your head that there could be danger because it's said that the waves are too big and we see Cleo kind of struggling with Pepe. And so she has to go like back to their little hut uh, to get him dry or something. 
and Sophie and uh, Paco just going to the ocean. And we start seeing the fear in Cleo's eyes as to what's happening. She's yelling after the kids, get back here to the shore. And then so she's going back to Pepe, focusing on him. And then we see her look out. So we start feeling that danger, like, oh, something can happen. And the the great the the beauty about that shot is that it never cuts. So once again, we're just on her the entire time and follow her into the ocean. Again, like it's you said, it's a technical knowing, marvel how they filmed that as well. It's because amazing. you have the waves come up o- almost over the lens. It seems. Yeah, I mean, it's like right there, like mm-hmm. parallel to ocean level, uh, following Cleo into the ocean after these two kids. And the way the kids kind of bob up and disappear. Yes. They yeah. d- it's just like they just appear out of nowhere in the in the yeah. water. You can't you can't see them for so long, and then suddenly you see them. It's it, incredible. It's so well done. Bit but the, um, but the coordination of that, yeah. you know, having but how to, they must have dropped the kids in and, and got everything. Yeah, because the kids were in the in shot take as well. Yeah, because yeah, the kids were in the shot at the beginning of the the scene, and then they're out again. So there was this whole other stuff happening while they're over here with Cleo. So I can only just kind of imagine how they would do that. But yeah, it's it's incredible. The scene reaches its sort of point when they're back on the beach and she saved them. Kids are safe and we can all breathe and relax and Sophia comes over. So the first the first interesting thing about that is the fact they all come together. Mm-hmm. They they're all gravitating around Cleo. And right. The the tenderness, the hugging, the mm-hmm. this this big embrace that requires an entire family. Yeah. That's a key kind of image of, of this ending to the film to give it some sort of conclusion very emotional too you can really feel the the heartfelt performances from everybody and this is where Cleo just breaks down and, and she starts talking about how she never wanted a kid she didn't want the kid to be born she didn't want the kid to live yeah. she didn't want the kid to live and for her to admit that and not only admit it she but crying her eyes out. say it out loud and, and she also kind of just she must have felt when that kid actually when the baby actually died i mean she says you know that poor thing it's this is really the guilt we realize that she's not just going through a loss she's also going through a guilt and so then we see sophia and cleo finally really connect as human beings Mm -hmm. and sophia saying to cleo you know we love you and it's going to be okay and the way she delivers that we feel that to be genuine and no longer there's a class divide or anything you have Two human beings who have gone through these incredibly tough situations, finally being there for each other, and it's a very and then having the kids around them. There's this very beautiful image, and then you have Tonio who doesn't join. He's just kind of to the side. He's, he stands off. He he does actually come down eventually. In, in the script, it says he stands off the whole time. Oh, that's true, right? And in the film, he he does come oh, in. Right, yeah. So that that must have been a decision that quite unmade. Right. Towards the end, actually, I'm gonna. Mm. Maybe he was a part of this. And having that that moment again, what I feel is the you're talking about the elements, and I feel that the water, the ocean, it's purity. I think they're cleansing themselves. You said uh, early on, she Sophia's ready to move on. She bought a new car. She's ready to go. Cleo, I think maybe now at this point she is. She's washed. She's in washed the waters away. And She's way. reborn and, and she proves herself because she goes out there to save these kids mm-hmm. because she loves them so much. So she is a mother. She risks her life. She risks her life for them. She never thinks twice, oh, I can't swim. She's like, I need to save these kids. And we see her true character, 
her resilience and her love. And she's in some ways more of a mother than Sophia is, even though she lost her baby. Mm-hmm. And so it, to me, that's the significance of, of that ending. Yeah, the the, I mean, there's there's only a couple of extra scenes after that point. I think it is interesting how they come home and the way each of the children interprets the changes in the house because mm. Antonio has come back and he's taken his bookshelves. And Tonio, the eldest, is saying, the house is so ugly without the bookshelves. Mm-hmm. And the other children, who are a bit younger and don't remember their father so much, are saying, oh, I like it. I, I like it without this and I like it how looks bigger it, and it looks bigger yeah, and then space to play. I can't remember if it's Sophie or Pepe that is one of the youngest who says oh I, I didn't even realize it was gone essentially and that I think represents the father entirely yeah. the different ages and the way you perceive things mm-hmm. based on your age just uh, the same events absolutely and uh, and the final scene essentially is Cleo walking up some stairs and we see the sky and is written in the script as Cleo asciende, Cleo ascends, Mm -hmm. and that's presumably him suggesting she's an angel, she's going up to heaven, she's she's one of those people that deserves to ascend. Yeah, it's it's, uh, after that cleansing of the ocean and then Mm -hmm. now we're fixated on the sky. It's uh, it's kind of this, the idea only just occurred to me, I might be reaching for too much, but at the beginning when we see the plane, which is a bookend, right? Mm-hmm. We see the the plane through the reflection of the water being washed down at the very beginning. And then we see it yeah. again. But this time it's no longer a reflection. It's actually there. We start with water. The reflection is like potential. But the potential in Cleo. And the ending is that's who she really... She did become yeah. what her potential was. Yeah. Right. So, it's, it's a beautiful image. Yeah. There's so much to read into this film. We could is, talk yeah. about it forever. There are people who don't like the film. There are people who think it's too slow, it's too boring, that nothing happens. There are people who think the film is too slow, too boring, nothing mm-hmm. happens. But I, what I would say is that the film actually just asserts that the tragedy of life is enough. Mm-hmm. That's enough to make a story out of. Mm. And there's a lot of people who say there's no real beginning, middle, or end. Of the- I, I just can't believe that because we've yeah. just followed the story I know. And we're moving through this really fast because otherwise we would talk for six hours. There's so much story here. There is. In fact, it's overwhelming. And (laughs) Well, you know why? Because a lot of it is implied. And I think there's always more to talk about when... When you have to figure it out. When things are implied, when when things aren't spelled out for you. Yeah, and I think that's something that he does brilliantly. It's like, again, Mm -hmm. these little details that begs for more questions rather than answering them. And through the questions, your, your mind kind of expands with the story so the story expands with the questions if it was very finite there was no need to think about it but because it just kind of gives you enough to sort of stimulate your imagination it creates a bigger bigger world and i think that's what the genius of his writing was yeah he's and he's definitely someone who's been brought up in a a different tradition to Mm. what uh let's say a large amount of writers in American films will have been brought up with the the English and American literary traditions and the Latin American and Spanish literary traditions are very different and they mm-hmm. often do seem very reflective and deep and you've got all of the magical realism that happened in in Latin America and that kind of ties into some of the 
interesting stuff that happens with like Pepe remembering past lives, even though he's just a child and things like that. So he's definitely incorporating an entire different language of of cinema, and it's fantastic. It's a beautiful we movie. We both love the film. Yeah, it's a it's a great film. But I knew the minute it was over, I had seen something. I went through it like emotionally. It, it grabbed me and pulled me deeply. So on a personal level, that's what it did for me. Yeah. Great. Cool.